0: Welcome back to the flip side. Galen Clavio, Brian Moritz back at it once again, Brian. We are in the midst of the winter Olympics. And so I have to ask you, which obscure winter Olympic event do you feel you would have been best suited for?
1: Oh, curling. That's easy. Because that's um... really, is that an obscure event anymore? I don't know if it's obscure, but if we're talking about anything that I would be athletically able to do, I mean, it basically begins and ends with curling. Well, maybe um, not.
0: maybe, maybe uh, we shouldn't think of it from the standpoint of what you're athletically able to do and, and what your soul
1: like calls for you to want to be doing. All right. Well, I'm 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 googling Winter Olympic events so I can have the uh, the full list in front of me. Um, there aren't yeah, very many of them, comparatively speaking. There, there's right. only uh, like
0: 15 Winter Olympic events.
1: All so. right, Winter sports. So let's see here: Alpine skiing. That's right. Out biathlon. Okay, me with a gun. Sure. Um, <laughs> I pay to see that. I really would. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Are you kidding me? No, I really. That would be that'd be greater <laughs> entertainment than listening to this podcast. Let's see. Um, I think. I'm gonna go, yeah, I still say curling because you know that's what, what, what where I am, but I also do feel like there's a certain amount of every guy in the world who likes skeleton because it's going head first down a, down a, a hill of ice and I don't know if you're gonna if you're gonna go, you might as well go all in on that. So I actually have done the uh, Olympic bobsled run uh, in Lake Placid years and years and years ago and it was in the summer so it was less effective because there's no snow but we actually did a buddy of mine and i actually did the part of the olympic bobsled run uh which is really cool actually huh that does sound kind of interesting yeah they, they gave us how much was good because i whacked my helmet on the when you went up in one of the final turns we got up pretty high and i whacked my head pretty good on that so i could have gotten a concussion not for the helmet what's so.
0: interesting is that um they, they call it Bob sleigh, yeah, on that's the Olympic, ter- on the right. Olympic Games website. And, and a, there's apparently a one person Bob Sled that they call the Mono Bob.
1: That's fantastic. I want it, <laughs> that. That's mine. I want that. I want the Mono Bob. <laughs> that is so good. I, I,
0: I've never actually, se- I don't think I've ever seen the Mono Bob on TV before, but it definitely exists. And it's, and it's, oh wow, <laughs> it is absolutely ridiculous looking. I mean, I'm looking at this video of. This German guy in a monobob, and uh, which is the greatest sentence you've ever uttered on this podcast. I mean, German guy in a monobob. Yeah, I mean, it looks, it just looks, it looks like a giant plastic condom, basically that that the guy crawls (laughs) into the top of. And I I mean,
1: what the flying hell is (laughs) that?
0: Exactly. Actually, it looks like a dirt devil, like. It does, uh, or yeah. a dust devil. I mean,
1: you know, like a or what? No, it is dirt devil. The vacuum cleaner. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah that's fascinating. Wow, I've, I, I've heard these sleds are really loud. It floats as gently as a cloud. Monobob, uh, monobob, monobob. So <laughs> that's what I've got. So I'm, a, go. I'm absolutely at heart a monobobber. There you the go. You are monobobber, monobobist. I, I don't.
0: I'm, oh, not, I'm not even totally sure what the etymology of bobsled is. Like, why, why bobsled? I mean, yeah. why, like, you know. uh. That that's uh, I'm probably gonna have to look this up. It's a uh, it's a uh, it a was first wrapped
1: in an enigma, wrapped in a bob.
0: Well, it, it dates back to the 1870s. The 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 competition does and apparently it has its roots uh in the mineral spa town of st moritz in switzerland yep. so there you go yep congratulations no Thank wonder you. this this ties right into you it does tie. so what's yours if
1: it if, if i've claimed the monobob and you can claim that too what's your uh obscure event that you are uh, uh you know i'm i'm gonna have to say as i've looked at the various
0: events um it's it's probably team ski snowboard cross. That's definitely. Oh me. yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's like you know. Now my wife is looking at me in horror because <laughs> as she would point out I've never actually been on a ski board or uh, or or skis or a snowboard, but right. I feel like in my heart that's where I belong. On, on which one? On the ski or the snowboard? Or do probably you? Probably the snowboard. Them out? I feel like the skis are, are too like that's too proper, you know, like you take lessons for that. Whereas, you know, the snowboard, you just, you know, you, you drink a lot of Mountain Dew, (laughs) you know, you, you smoke some, some of Colorado's finest and you you just go out and you you just, you just feel, I don't know. Um, It's, uh, you know, I do think it's interesting. The winter Olympics, if you think about the amount of, of, of area on the planet that actually is capable of supporting the conditions required to train and be interested in winter Olympics in the first place, it's like, we might as well have like, it'd make more sense to have an Olympic games just for swimming because that is done by far greater of a proportion of people than the winter Olympics are. And, you know, so it's whenever this Olympics rolls around, I'm struck by thinking, you know, that, it's
1: it's not really summer Olympics and winter Olympics that that like the breakdown isn't fifty fifty. Growing up, you know, in Western New York, not far from ski country, where I did, and obviously the Lake Placid's a few hours away, and the Adirondacks are. Relatively close, like the Winter Olympics were never, and you know, Canada was. You could see Canada, so you could. So the Winter Olympics were from never like. Uh, yes, um no, I couldn't see Canada from <laughs> my house. Um, well, you could. You turned on TV and CFTO was right there, but it was still not this weird foreign concept that I'm sure it was more to someone who grew up in Indiana or grew up in Florida or North Carolina, where it's like what are you know skiing is this weird thing that you saw every now and then but especially now like winter olympics there's no summer olympics for another two years so like winter olympics that's it and so it kind of got a little little big of a little bit of a boost i'm just stunned at how few events there are yeah looking at, at this list i mean it's really i mean this is really a figure skating competition with some skiing and hockey involved i mean that's what this comes down to um so it is, it is
0: it is kind of interesting. Um, so anyway, it's um, that's going on right now. We're going to talk about the Olympics a little bit more later on in the podcast. But um, let's let's put that on hold for the moment and yep. jump into some of the other topics that we've got going on this week. So, you know, first of all, uh, I guess we we should probably talk a bit about um, the a uh, topic that is kind of, I guess, if there's a main topic that occupied sports journalism over the last week, it's it's probably this one, okay. but it, it's this Ron Borges situation. So, um, for those who didn't follow this, this thing ended up mushrooming in a couple of different ways. So, well, well, make sure I want to I want to get the story right. So, a prank caller, um, was it a prank caller? or I guess a prank texter. Mm-hmm
1: prank texter Uh, and then he started as a texter i think he started as a texter and then moved on and then got bold and went to the call so but but this guy um
0: decides he's going to impersonate uh the the, whose agent tom brady's agent don yee Mm -hmm. and so he texts this guy ron borges a columnist for the boston herald i believe right right yeah and so apparently uh ron borges was very receptive to the idea that he was actually texting Tom Brady's agent and apparently didn't like check or anything like that. asked Asked to talk to him on the phone and rather than have suspicions there, apparently was satisfied that that's exactly who he was
1: talking to. And so what happens after that? So he uh, the he makes the he makes the phone call to the prank guy and the prank guy the guy who's doing the prank who apparently is like a known caller or like a known guy on WEE like a, like like kind of a, like one of those callers who's well known on a, on a local talk radio and uh, so uh, Borg, Borg just calls him a few times and the guy doesn't pick up he doesn't pick up and he's like you know what eff it I'm gonna pick up picks up the phone pretends to be Tom Brady's agent air quotes on this confirms the story that I believe he's holding out for more money or some sort of like contract thing. And Ron just runs with it and runs the story. And not only runs the story, it's like the back page cover. Sorry, hitting the mic back page cover of the Boston Herald the next day, you know, Brady exclusive from Ron Borgis. Brady's agent says Brady holding out, whatever, whatever, whatever. Total BS. Absolutely. I mean, I made just fabricated out of thin air, by a prank caller um by a prank radio caller and i mean just so many so many questions on this so much i don't i i i try to understand but don't um i don't well, know where do you where do you want to start with i this? mean first and foremost uh, you know w-
0: there what i was struck by was some of the reaction, certainly not all of it, but some of the reaction in the immediate aftermath of this was like defending Borges, yeah, there's no defending him. like somehow he had been un like, like wronged because this guy had purposefully set out to mislead him and and right. i didn't I just didn't get that at all. like what what's the what's the thought process? because this was media members that were jumping on this, like ed werger okay. and and a couple of other people. And, and and it's just like what what exactly is there to defend, you know, for for the fact of the matter that you know you've been basically just you've been had. When right. it happens, people get had all the time, right? Um, but it's almost like it's made worse by people coming to your defense and claiming that like somehow the responsibility for you being had
1: wasn't on you. Right. Well, I feel like... So, a, a few things to unpack on that. For one, I think that when there's a reaction to this, it's twofold. Like, from the Edwarders. And I hadn't seen a lot of the reaction, so I'll look it up, but I'll take your word on it. So, I think... There, I mean, I'm like, not saying it was everybody, but then I saw a few of them. There those. were a few. There was a, so, there was a
0: Twitter feud between... Uh, Ed Werder and Barstool, Big Cat of all people, about that,
1: and you know that 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 sounds like the absolute worst thing to have happened in the world in a very long time. It was worth seeing. I'll say, Uh, I'll go. I'll I'll go. I'll go check out that thread. But so part of it, I think, is the kind of a natural defensiveness that you know uh, print reporters, traditional sports reporters, have against you know the internet guy or the telephone, the, the sports radio caller. I'm using a lot of air quotes today, but it's this idea that you know, um, you're being a jerk. We're just trying to do our job and you're making it harder by pretending and, and by, by fooling us and and being mean about it and being a jerk about it. And so I think there's natural defensiveness about it. I think there is a lot of holy God there, but the grace of God go I, that I didn't get burned by that or that you could easily just, you you can see yourself getting burned on it. Right. Um, so the, the, the unanswered question I have with this is Ron Borges has been in Boston forever. Like a long time he was at the Globe for a long time then he got suspended for plagiarism which is a whole other deal. But he was on the radio <laughs> You're far more up on this than I am. Right, he's not he he uh, he's been on the radio. He's he's not a new guy in Boston. Like he's been in Boston for a very long time. What amazes me about it and and he's covered the NFL. So he's been around the NFL. He's been around the Patriots. You're telling me that this guy, this media guy does not have Tom Brady's agent no, agent's number. You know, some, you know, it's not a new agent. I, I believe he's Brady's had this agent for a long time. You would, I would think as a reporter working in Boston, you would say, Hey, I, you know, you would have his phone number from me, like contacting him at some point in the 15, 20 years that Brady's been playing there or that you've, or, or not. And I'll, I'll cut him some slack. Maybe he got a new phone. Maybe, you know, he got a new phone, whatever you've never spoken to him in 15 years, not once. So that when you call him and, and you you're completely fooled by him. And not only that, you get this piece of information and and wouldn't what my, one of my first calls would be to our page to, to the Patriots beat reporter at the paper that I'm working with and say, Hey, I'm hearing this from Brady's agent is texting me. This is, is this, are you hearing anything on this? Is this, is this like, is this passing your bullshit detector at all? Um, and he didn't do any of that. He, it was like everything you we teach our students not to do. He got like an unsubstantiated text with like a, a salacious piece of sports gossip, and he ran with it because reasons. I don't know. It's so weird. It's such a weird thing because it's not like it's not like he got fooled by a bad Twitter feed or something like that. It's not like, like he retweeted a fake Woj. Account or something like that. Um, it's not, and it's not like he's a new guy or like a beat guy in like a competitive, you know, situation where he's trying to fu- break news of something they're waiting for. It was like just so out of nowhere. It's so it, I'm still kind of dumbstruck by it because it's just so weird. Right.
0: Well, I, you know, I was hoping you'd be able to give me some insights on this. I mean, I was wondering <laughs> if. I mean, does this fit in? There was this there was this kind of larger thing that was going on the week before the Super Bowl and then certainly with this involving the Boston media afterwards as well, but you know Boston media took some hits. Uh you know between the the sports talk radio guys uh Oh, that that those
1: idiots. Yeah. Insulting
0: yeah. Brady's kid and then right. you know, I mean just kind of the general the the general feeling around uh, you know Boston sports media that it's not, a, I mean, it's 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 certainly not a shining example of the kind of you know, a, a, objective and and I guess you know professional professional press corps. You know, particularly in the more opinionated sections of it. So, do you see this as fitting into that paradigm as it was being discussed uh, in media last week, or is this just a different sort of incident? I mean.
1: A, a little of both to like, stra- to like, uh, play down the line here, but. You know, it, it, it's kind of its own thing, and you know, Ron Bohr just has his own Wikipedia page with a whole section on criticism. So, I mean, he's been alleged to plagiarizing. He got into a fist fight with a, a New York Times reporter at a press conference in Las Vegas in 2004. Um, I mean, just what kind of one of those guys in media, and media just is, is full, full of them. I don't know enough about you know. The, the the Boston thing, I, I did see a Globe story where I think on one of his... Was it on a podcast that Simmons kind of went off and said how the Boston sports media has been terrible for 30 years? I think it was just in a series of tweets. And oh, then that, okay, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, then that, that apparently raised the ire of Dan Shaughnessy, who... Oh, good.
1: You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean uh, Boston sports media has got to be the... And I have friends who work in the Boston sports media. But it has got to be like the weirdest, most self-important nasal gazing navel gazing collection in sports media and i'm sure a lot of it has to do with like the literary aspect of like the, of, of the red Sox and their uh uh and, and their their history certainly simmons played a role in that his emergence and like his growth out of boston and being you know the boston guy of, of everything uh, uh, on top of everything but i don't know it's just Boston is weird. sport uh, Sports media wise, I feel like, because, you know, for being such a sports town and such like a, you know, kind of an epicenter of so much sports with the Patriots and, and, and their run, the Red Sox are always kind of near the top. The Celtics have been, you know, have been very high up lately um, and mean good And the Bruins. Obviously, they've, they've had a run lately. You know there they, you have the Globe but then you also have the herald which is the tri- which is the uh for those of you who aren't familiar with the intricacies that's the tabloid so they're going to be a lot more kind of street a lot more kind of controversial big opinions much more than the globe which is the broadsheet but then you have weei and all the sports talk and i don't know there's just it's a weird thing about boston sports media and they and and, and well it's very provincial Yes. of gather and i look
0: i, I don't really I have no dog in this fight. I don't really care. But I do think it's interesting in light of some of the criticisms that were being leveled at Boston Sports Media the previous week to think about, okay, well, how does, you know, like, whatever you want to think about this incident with Borges, it does have to play in to some degree with the overall aura of Boston sports media as far as the landscape's concerned
1: right i, I, I I'd agree with that um, but it's just so weird like if this stuff like this happened in New York I think there'd be a whole lot of well F you it's New York what are you gonna do? there's like this weird kind of expectation of like Boston sports media should be I don't know it's just uh, I'm having trouble put put you know you articulating it but it just it it does feel like um I don't know like what do the crit, the critics of Boston's sports media, like let let's be honest, all the actions that have been criticized are have been should be criticized roundly by reporters. Ron Borges made up a story and and you know used a fake source. The guy on was it the the the, the radio guy insulted Brady's five year old. I'm the biggest Tom Brady hater in the world, and I'm siding with Tom Brady. That's how egregious it was. And then you had another uh, some other radio stuff going on, and it's just. I don't know like what, you know, this kind of gets at the age old question of what do people want from their sports media and what do they kind of expect from their sports media? And your, your, your notion of Boston, the Boston media being provincial is really, it's really on point. I'm in this research that we're doing on the athletic and on subscription sites. I spent some time at the Boston sports journal, the Greg Bedard joint that opened up in July, last July. And like the whole pitch of that site is we're Boston people, like they're Boston natives. We grew up here. We live here. We know Boston. And it was striking to see that when compared to other sports pay sites that are not necessarily as like provincial, to use right. the, the, the word. Like it's very much like the selling point of Boston Sports Journal is just is we are Boston people writing about Boston sports. So we get you in a way that – ostensibly the globe the herald everyone else wouldn't get and you know i don't know if that's just intrinsic to boston to the boston area or if it's uh uh i don't know yeah i don't know it's very curious and but not so curious that we should spend any more time on no no i think i've talked enough about boston
0: let's let's take a break and let's chat about something else uh we'll let's let's just dive into our uh our Twitter outrage that we didn't engage in for the week, and and right. uh, yours seems to be Olympics coverage related.
1: Yeah, basically anything to do with the Olympics. I have not, uh, not, not gotten into. I guess if I had to pick one thing, um, and I can't, I, I would ordinarily say like the Mike Pence stuff, but I think I retweeted some snarky comments because being uh, retweeting snarky comments about Mike Pence is just fun. Um, one of my students today actually asked me, he's like a sophomore. He asked me like, why do, why does everyone hate Mike Pence? Like what's the deal with Mike Pence? And I had to be really careful what I said, cause I don't have tenure, but you know, where do you start? <laughs> but, um, so I think I would go just kind of in general, the, uh, the opening ceremony snark. Um, which I gave because I wa- my wife and I watched the opening ceremonies and we were snarking to each other, but we weren't doing it online for whatever reason. But um, I don't know, just a, I guess a lot of the NBCification of the Olympics. I have not been kind of super interested in any of the critiques, criticisms of uh, of what's been going on there. I don't know. Has there have I been missing any big media outrages? Yeah, there have okay. been
0: a couple uh, of note. I mean, uh, the biggest one was probably um, there was uh, the NBC's Asia correspondent.
1: Oh, Uh, he was an idiot. Yeah. Is he the guy who said the the Japan thing?
0: Yes. Okay. claim that, that every Korean will tell you that Japan, as a cultural and technological and economic example, has been so important to their own transformation. And it's Exce- like...
1: Except, yeah. I, <laughs> it's like I said in class, I'm like, just the way Poland can say, yes, our economy was driven and helped by Germany. And, well, and, yeah. So there was
0: that. There was the... Uh, and he's been fired now, I guess, by NBC. Okay. Like, completely. There was Katie Couric, who uh, during the opening ceremonies decided to talk about the Dutch speed skating team. And and her quote was, now, why are they so good? You may be asking yourselves, because skating is an important mode of transportation in a city like Amsterdam, which sits at sea level. As you all know, it has lots of canals that can freeze in the winters. So for as long as those canals have existed, the Dutch have skated on them to get from place to place to race each other and also
1: to have fun. That feels like somebody writing like that like they like some interns were up late and like how can we screw with them? Let's see let, I know they skate from city to city in Amsterdam. Dude, she's not gonna read that. No, come on, she's gonna read it. She's not it's like a Ron Burgundy thing. She's just gonna read what you put in front of her. You know where else has a lot of canals. Um uh, upstate New York, I well, got the Erie Canal like a minute from me. Venice, Italy has canals. I mean, okay. do people skate on those? Um no, it's sunny there, duh. It's right. not at sea level. I don't know. <laughs> it's not at sea level. Wow. So
0: they had all that going on, and they, you know, they've they've had some programming issues. And I think the biggest complaint I've seen about NBC's coverage so far has been that they're not showing much live. Like you know, you Anything, you go yeah. you you go to like you know we're watching NBC Sports Network right now, uh, but you go over to, to regular NBC and they're, they're showing things that already aired from earlier on in the day. And, you know, it's the same sort of deal as it was with the Beijing Olympics, uh, you know, with the added uh, element of them, you know, cutting a lot of, of material out of the events that they're showing, which I I mean, I've gotten into some debates on this. My, my argument has been that, I don't think most people really care about the Olympics winter or summer as a sporting event. I think they care about it as more of like just something to watch that has lots of, you know, pretty colors and people wearing flags. Right. And so as a result, NBC looks at it and says, well, hardcore sports fans, you know, we're not really worried about them because I mean, how many hardcore Olympic sports fans are there really? And then you know you look at like the vast majority of what your likely audience is for primetime nbc and they're probably not sitting on twitter trying to figure out what the results were during the day and they don't really care if stuff has been edited or not um right. i don't know it's it's been an interesting it hasn't been as bad as it's as we've seen in you know like the sochi olympics as far as like the nbc fail hashtag or even the rio olympics but it's it's becoming this common motif to the point that I wonder if it's even worth like getting upset about because it's not like, N- I mean, I, I just don't see NBC needing or wanting a change in order to like, who are they going to satisfy with changing the way that they cover these
1: things? Well, I mean, my argument has always been, you know, get back to economics and back to incentives. If, if people really cared, NBC would air stuff live. They wouldn't do this. This wouldn't be successful. They wouldn't air it in prime time. They wouldn't air it twelve hours after it uh, after it happened. They wouldn't kind of turn it into like more of a TV drama than a sporting event. There is no reason for them to change. They're doing it. People are watching. People like it. Um, the Olympics are, like you say, for a much more general audience than than the hardcore sports fans. If NBC, if there was an if there was a reason for NBC to change this, they would do it. They would because it would cost them they don't have an incentive to do it well I want to get back to the idiot the uh, e- the Asian correspondent who got fired yeah I did I, 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 I we had turned off the TV long before he insulted Japan and Korea um, which is pretty good to do but he was driving me crazy so we're watching the opening ceremonies and the, the the, the pageantry and we started watching we we watched up until they had the eight minute u.s walk-in which was like 30 seconds of the actual thing but they stretched it out to 10 minutes of telecast of course so we're watching like the uh the dancing and like all like the artistic stuff beforehand and my daughter's loving it theater kid she's loving it and loving it and it was re- really a beautiful pageant but they were you know of course NBCifying it by describing exactly what we're seeing, but you had this guy who's their Asia Bureau chief or whatever, so in theory why he's there is that he is the expert, right? He right. knows Asia, he knows, like this is his turf and he's going to describe it and I, sw- I don't know if you watched it Everything he said, it was like he was reading a Wikipedia entry about Asian culture. It was it was it was he was not adding anything to it, like even less than like Mike Chirico and Katie Couric, who were basically just, oh, that's beautiful. That's pretty. This is really nice. He was trying to add the substance and like the context that we needed. And it was so laughably bad that I kind of love that he stumbled over it and ate the booger on it. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just I mean, again it kind of goes i mean
0: look to some degree i blame nbc for you know cons, cons, like just having no faith in their audience and having right. no having no desire to educate their audience even against the audience's will right. but but you know but it's like it's how i feel about a lot of sports coverage in general where it's like hey here's an analyst they should be giving us analysis and that analysis should go more you should actually give us Something that we don't know, but instead right. what it devolves into, and you see this with with basketball, with football, with everything, it devolves into the analyst telling us things we already know, and the like the, the this the bosses above thinking that that's the way it should be done because people don't want to be challenged with new information, which I think is completely backwards, right. Um, and it's like you you know, this but this is the issue. this has been the longstanding issue with. With network television and that kind of network television mentality with broadcasting where it's like, um, you know, you're, you're, you're just playing to the lowest common denominator of of information. And it gets really annoying. And you know to some degree it's kind of poetic justice that nbc had to eat shit on that decision because Mm -hmm. not only did the guy they bring on say something offensive to the host country but he also didn't know what the hell he was talking about when he was talking about everything else in asia i mean he said well he he said something along the lines of you know we've got the winter olympics here we've got the summer olympics in japan next time around and then we've got the next Winter Olympics in China, so people are going to get to see all the Asian cultures in a four-year time And That's like all of them, all of that's everything. <laughs> no other Asian cultures. No, that's it. Chinese, Japanese, Co- and, and Korean. Korean. Yeah, right. So that that's it's you know it, it, to some degree it's like I, I see that and I'm like I don't really mind that NBC gets bitten on the ass with this
1: stuff because that's right.
0: when you when you when you program like morons you get. To do moronic things as a result of it.
1: Well, and the kicker too is that that wasn't live. Like that was at least twelve hours old by the time they aired it. So they could have, in theory, edited it. Edit da, 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 da. Et, like you can do here. Edit it out, or you know, like hey, right. let, let's mute right. them I'm not, on I'm that. i not one. editing that out, bro. Oh no, that, that that's the title of the podcast. I'm going to try oh. to transcribe that. Okay. Um, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. So anyway. <sighs>
0: Let's move on. This was a question that got posed on Twitter a while back, and okay. you you dove into it, and I liked your answer. So we're going to chat about it here. But okay. if you've for for people who have not yet read Fire and Fury, uh, I highly recommend it, regardless of what your political persuasion happens to be, um, because I think it is uh, it'll answer a lot of questions you have about the current government. Uh, you know whether you whether you like the current government or not, but. After reading that, I posed the, kind of a jokey question, but you know every jokey question has a an interesting answer, I think. But um, y- you look at the portrayal of Steve Bannon in in the book, and you know it's kind of this um, knight errant figure who is you know kind of grandiose in his own uh, interpretation of himself and has all these huge plans, and yet also is kind of schlubbish and doesn't really. Like isn't really like has one or two major successes and then that's surrounded by a bunch of I guess what you would charitably call not successes. Mm -hmm. So my question was who is the the Steve Bannon of sports? Mm -hmm. Um, And you know this is a complicated question if you're talking about sports on you know on the field of play because generally speaking you get like one maybe two chances at failure and that's that in in sports and then you just aren't given a chance anymore. But you know, certainly in the world of sports media people are given chances to fail like over and over again like it's almost like one success entitles you to a lifetime of failures so right. so that was the question you know particularly in the in the sports media world who is the Steve Bannon of of sports and you
1: said it was Jason Whitlock right so explain your answer there all right so you had you you had uh, had warned me not to answer this question until I had read the book and I'm about I think between a third and a half way through the book right now. But I got through, there's an entire chapter relatively early in the book that's Bannon. It's about, it's basically the Steve Bannon chapter um, early in the Trump administration. And as I'm reading it, I don't have the copy, my copy's upstairs. Um, so I don't have the, the exact uh, passages that that kind of tip me off on it. But it, but it struck me. You know, I think you want to answer this question. The idea, the general idea is who's the firebrand, who's like the, the, the shit stirrer, who's like trying to blow it up or who's like super conservative or like right wing or Breitbarty. And so that's where you kind of get like the Clay Travis answer or you get the the uh, Skip Bayless, I think, which is ridiculous. Um, but you get those kind of answers to it. Um. And but the 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 description I read it was very uh, of Bannon. It was it, it it I found it clinging very close to Whitlock. You know the idea of you have some people who have successes. You have people who are kind of genuinely talented at a certain thing, and they they hit on some things. Um, what what really struck me about it, I think, is and I'm going to get the exact words wrong, or I'm not going to get them at all right. But there's who an are idea. You, Michael Wolf. No, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, by the way, my my editor wife is reading that book and and highlighting all the errors or typos or mistakes the first typo is a missing word on page three well you know they they said there's an he thanks an editor i don't know what that means but nobody edited this book but anyway, anyway um uh he basically i mean the idea of bannon is that he is at heart an opportunist he is an at heart kind of seeing where the winds were, where he's not like a revolutionary leader so much as he kind of gloms onto something and kind of sees where things are going and tries to stake out a claim there. Um, and it just struck me like that feels very much like Whitlock, like what has happened with Whitlock over the past few years. And this idea of, uh, you know, he, he was very, you know, jumping around he was at ESPN then he was at Fox and he was back at ESPN and then he kind of bounced around from gig to gig and from high profile thing to high profile thing always with these big pronouncements always with these like big uh you know big grandiose plans and then he was going to do the undefeated and the undefeated really became at the beginning was like Whitlock's pet deal like his project it was kind of very much driven by his personality by his worldview of course that all went to hell um And for him, him, the undefeated is doing fantastic work for ESPN right now. Um, But, but, and it very struck me as like the way Bannon is portrayed and the way Bannon kind of logged on to this, to Trump and that wing of the Republican party and of modern conservatism, very much like, like how Whitlock staked out, you know, started to stake out this claim as the conservative black guy or like the, the anti-social justice warrior pose and, and kind of like move, you know, tried to position himself in this very political uh, in, in this political realm, that to me has always felt very calculated. It never felt like this is a natural move. It never felt like these were his natural politics. It always felt to me like Whitlock started to get criticized by people, you know, on the left or of a certain political point of view, or were critical of his worldview, and he kind of like lashed out and kind of went against them and like staked out the claim opposite them and. You know, fashions himself, and this is similar to Bannon, fashions himself as this, like, fire bomber taking down the status quo and, you know, uh, burning everything to the ground when he's really just kind of like the dude shooting spitballs in the back of class. And he can be disruptive at times, but I don't know, you know, Bannon has since been fired, uh, Whitlock... uh, what has happened? You know, the Terrell Owens tweet that where, where T.O. tweeted back, like, clapped back at him on Twitter is literally the first time I think anybody's heard from Whitlock in months. So, yeah, the, 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 when I was reading that, that's the, the only person that, watched, that that came to my mind to the point where I texted you and was like, this feels like it's too easy, like it's too right. obvious. But I don't know if it is. Like, did, did you have another person in mind with that? I didn't. I mean, okay. I uh, that, that makes the
0: most sense, I agree. And I think... Uh, you know it really a lot of it comes down to uh, something you said uh, which is you know this idea of uh, you know what where you know your self-importance within a, a landscape to your actual position in the landscape mm-hmm. and you know i i it's interesting because i do think that there's certain things that whitlock has in, has talked about or has engaged in from an intellectual perspective that are probably conversations worth having. You know, I feel I've often felt like certain elements of shall we say I, I mean what what would it be? Social justice warrior sports coverage. Okay. Um, you know, whether that's the more extreme elements of Deadspin or whether it's Vice, it's like there's there's a certain kind of unflinching acceptance of a lot of not just the, not just the points that those folks try to make, but also the kind of bitchy New York city media attitude that they bring to everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's, I think that in, in the, in in an internet world, that's kind of ruled by, by links and retweets and all that stuff. It's not the worst thing in the world to have some pushback as far as that stuff's concerned. But at the end of the day, he's always been to some degree neutered by his own inability to like stake out a real intellectual
1: ground around a position that he's taking. As I was reading about Bannon, I often thought about Whitlock, like they're very much self-styled intellectuals who like, like to stake out an intellectual argument, but they really don't have a very, they don't have a very strong one. Um, and I'm, we're not just saying that as you know, two PhDs who are intellectual snobs. Like if you kind of push back or read them or spend any time with them, they're they're. It's not that they're dumb, but they like you say they are very self styled and they, they, they think shallow. of themselves. They think of themselves as really deep thinkers, but they're not deep thinkers no. at all. They're very I mean, shallow, kind yeah. of dressed up in big words and fanciness. Yeah. So. See. Anyway, uh, the book is a lot of fun. A friend of mine, uh, who's, uh, shares my political persuasion. So take that for what it's worth. He describes it as political cotton candy. And that's the best description of the book that I've read. Like, I don't know if it's, if it's, if I'm learning anything specifically new or that I didn't guess about the Trump white house or about the administration, but it's an interesting read. It's a fun, it's a fun, easy read too. If you can get your hands on it. It is a pretty
0: easy read. I, I, yeah. On, on our political show, we should talk more about the book in depth because there's, I mean, I, i find the reaction to it quite fascinating from yeah. from, from various sources it's uh well anyway yeah. um let's jump to our, our final topic we'll, we'll skip our final set piece because i don't know what we I don't do have any I, I, I haven't point. had a
1: new beer this week so I was right, drinking yeah. orange juice tonight so yeah so uh
0: but let's talk a little bit about this last uh, item which is um you you brought up so i'm curious what you'd like to talk about on it but uh media coverage of bracketology right uh, this is you know bracketology of course is you know the the kind of study and execution of uh the ncaa men's uh, tournament bracket there's a whole like science behind it and then there's some art involved as well right in terms of putting it together
1: um so what, what was your thought process here? Um, I'm interested in, first of all, thank you for putting Bonaventure in your first bracket this year. I, I very much appreciate that. I take um, care I'm, of my an, I'm an extreme fatalist after two years ago and thinking that unless they win the A-10 or go on a massive run, it's not, they're going to they're gonna always pick Syracuse over St. Bonaventure and I'm kind of fatalistically resigned to that. So anything that happens that's good is a pleasant surprise. Although they've won six in a row, big game, trap game Wednesday, big game against Rhode Island on Friday. Anyway, so what's changed about the NCAA tournament for me and i'm always fascinated with bracketology but i'm especially interested this year because they have the quadrants and the team pages that are out so they have this kind of new uh team sheet like the the team sheets and you can get them on the uh on the ncaa website but it like breaks wins down so instead of just you know it, it's and the NCAA's like official attempt to like quantify selection process a little bit so like takes into account like the rpi i think ken palm is on there there are a bunch of other kind of quantifiable and then they have you know quadrant one quadrant two quadrant three quadrant four and like your season is broken up into the four quadrants so you want a good record in one and two and uh if you have too many bad like it's like you have two losses in quadrant four those are the bad losses or whatever And I'm just, I'm curious to see how this, you know, and also the NCAA put out its first 16. Um, it's like top 16 teams. Uh, and I think they're going to be, it's kind of like college football style where they're yeah. unveiling the, the top four teams of the, of the top kind of 16 teams along the way. Um, and I'm just interested to see how those things kind of combine into our guessing of the bracket and our, and our coverage of the bracket. Cause in one hand, like I'm a data guy. I love this idea of like the quadrants and like kind of trying to put a little bit of specificity into the calculations you know it was very much you know as a bonaventure guy two years ago we were like RPIs 19 we're a lock we're a lock but then you look at like well, our Ken Palm sucked. It was in the seventies, and our strength of schedule, and and you could you could easily kind of extrapolate a case out. But I'm just uh, there's another part of me that is like not looking forward to a month of both talk, quadrant talk and then people complaining about quadrant talk. So I don't right. know. I'm I'm just fascinated to see how this goes. And as someone who, so you do brackets regularly yeah, for have for a couple of decades, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, how does this, you know, how do you see that changing? Uh, how we how we talk about brackets in this next month. Then how are you using it and putting yours together?
0: Well, it look it it has created already a very annoying trend uh, when it comes to the way that the brackets are being discussed and the resumes of teams because we you know ultimately what it's doing these quadrants um, it's giving sp- stuff that people are just kind of overly focusing on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think now the problem is this: like when you you look at the the, the discussion around bracketology and there's always going to be some difference and it's you know a lot of it is just people not paying attention to the rules or people self selecting what they think you know they want to emphasize and hey, look there's always been that element a lot of times the brackets coalesce to to at least a decent degree by the end of things just because you know there's a lot of there's a lot of variation right now in who could be in the field by march I don't know, March 8th or 7th or whatever, there's not going to be nearly as much variance uh, simply because you're going to know who you right. know, 30 of the teams are or 32 of the teams are going in. Um, but the quadrants thing is annoying because two reasons. One, uh, I think people either are going overboard, emphasizing it, or they're only emphasizing one part of it, uh, right. and that's the very upper left quadrant, which is basically they they take all the teams in the country and they categorize them by their RPI rating. And RPI, for those who aren't aware, is a metric that's very not accurate, very not scientific, right. but it's your record and then your opponent's record and then your opponent's opponent's records. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the idea being that that metric gives you a sense of how good you are, largely in part, or uh, lar- largely taking into account how your opponents have done right uh, and how their opponents have done, but it's not a very good metric for a number of reasons. It doesn't really do a good job of waiting uh home and away. It doesn't do a good job of waiting pace. It doesn't, there's a lot of things it misses, which is what Ken Palm and stuff like that is there to do. Um, so I'm annoyed with that, but I'm mostly annoyed because to me, I've done this, like I said, I, by the first bracket I put together and really put down on paper, I think it was like 1996. So I've legitimately done brackets like well before they
1: were cool. Like as we, well, as we have said on this podcast, you are a bracketology
0: hipster, right? Like well before you could even find published RPI ratings. Like it just, it just didn't exist. And so uh, as I've watched this over the years, what I've noticed is that the committee will set criteria out in writing And then we'll disregard that criteria when it suits a particular interest. Right. And then the next year you'll try to take that into account and they'll take different criteria in, you know, one year they'll heavily emphasize road and neutral victories. Another year they'll emphasize total victories. Another year they'll emphasize, um, you know, the, you know, whether you've, um, you know whether you've played uh, a strong strength of schedule like stuff like that and it, it just it seems to change a lot depending on who's on the committee depending on what's getting focused on and what and you know so when i see this quadrant thing on the one hand you would think oh great the committee settled on something this is going to be their primary criteria and sure enough to some degree that proved to be the case certainly with the one seeds that they revealed on Sunday. On the other hand, there was no real justification for putting Oklahoma into the field as a protected seed, other Mm -hmm. than the fact that they have Trey Young. I mean, West, West Virginia had a better record had better wins, and was not there. And you could kind of go down the list like, you know, uh, they had North Carolina ahead of Duke and yet North Carolina had a better resume in terms of quality wins. And so This is where I get frustrated, and I think that, you know, look, I mean, it's a committee. Any committee is going to be flawed by nature, but, you know, the committee creates criteria and then doesn't do a good job of just saying, stick to these criteria and you'll be fine. They always want to have this wiggle room so they can basically, you know, screw around with the process and just decide on whatever they want. At the moment. And that really does get old. And so that's 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 kind of where I'm at with things.
1: Right. It kind of gets at the thing. And, and, you know, I've made this argument before about the Bonaventure thing and whatever. I'm a jilted fan. But it it does seem like at some level, like they make the decision and then find the metric to justify that decision. Sure. Instead of saying we're doing it this way. And and so you pick, you know, let's say you have Iowa versus St. Bonaventure. You can look at Iowa and you can kind of find a, well, they had more road top 20, top 40 wins or something like that because they play in a better conference, you know, right and then you but so instead of looking at the teams you like make the decision and, and that's always the frustrating thing for the committee from looking out on the outside is that kind of lack of knowledge of what you have to do to get an at-large bid or to kind of earn earn a top seat or or get placed wherever um i am i am looking forward to um you know as i've as i've Told you before, I listen to PTI every day. I'm looking forward to in about a week or so Mike Wilbon's rants against quadrants. And oh, yeah. uh, I cannot wait for that. That's going to be a thing of beauty. That
0: requires Mike Wilbon to have conscious knowledge of something other than Northwestern
1: playing college basketball, right? Uh, yeah, no, he, he, his like sister went to Virginia. So, and uh, oh, he's at he's t- schools there. And then. he's on ESPN, so he knows about Duke, Carolina. Fair points. Fair points, so. all of them. I just, you know, look, I,
0: Uh, I will say the bracketology field is significantly different than it used to be. I mean, it used to be a very small number of people who ever even cared about this stuff. Right. Um, And I felt, you know, like I was a part of that. I was, I've been on a mock tournament selection committee since 2002, which is just basically me and a bunch of dudes from all over the country who didn't know each other (laughs) who were brought together by this one guy named Kyle, Um, you know, and we would get together uh, like three days before the tournament via email and via uh, like a aol instant messenger right and, and we would go through the whole official bracketing procedure like the selection and bracketing procedure and it was a hell of a lot of fun and it's still fun and i still do brackets but there's so many people that you know that that claim to like be complete experts on this now who haven't Arts. Watched the the committee, like you know, you set out these criteria and people really take the criteria to heart and they're like, Oh, well, this must be this. Um, and and then they they get really frustrated when the tournament selection show comes around and they're like, Well, wait a minute, why why is this? And they start poking all these holes in the logic, and it's like you guys don't get it. Like, that's been going on for decades now. Right. Um, you know, it just it used to be just like the Kentucky Athletic Director and like six six people like sitting in the room. Arbitrarily deciding who was going where—that guy right. really, really fast. But right. look, I think I'll be curious to see what they do. I mean, if they if they stick with the criteria that they laid out in in the thing on Sunday, then great. That'll make things a little bit more predictable, which I don't right. think hurts anybody. I but I can almost guarantee that what they come up with on selection
1: Sunday won't really match what we saw this past weekend. I agree. And there's still obviously a month to go in conference tournaments and all that. And uh, it it is, it is, I will say it is cool from a personal perspective, just like I'm on Jerry palms, most recent bracket on CBS sports. And he has Bona as one of the first four out, but just to know that like my little school in the middle of nowhere in Western New York is, you know, a legitimate on the bubble conversation yeah. team. Like that's awesome. Like that no. is still, you know, when I can s- take a step back from it, that's still like, that's really cool that this is an even, even a conversation that, that you can have. So I've, I've been very proud of, of St. Bonaventure for kind of, uh, you know,
0: keeping pace with things. And, and look, I mean, you know, you want to talk about the, you know, I did, I did have you guys in the, the field. Playing. Yep. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, you were the part of the last four and I think you were actually the last team in, Woo! but I think to some degree, that's what the committee established was that a team like you was a team that they would be interested in, you know, because if you look at your record and, uh, and your, your metrics, I mean, they, they're favorable. I mean, you look yeah. at the, uh, you know, you you're, you're, you've got eight, Road or neutral wins, you've got three quadrant one victories, and all three of them were away from home. And in fact, all of all your are non-conference, yeah. Your quadrant one and quadrant two wins are all away from home. That right. that means a lot. Yeah. You know, you've got only one bad loss and it was at the, the it was the it, opening game of the year. It was the
1: opening game without uh the best player who was out yeah. injured.
0: Which, you know, that that gets um, that that gets noted in in the in the thing as well, and you know, I mean, you know, your 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 resume rating is pretty good. Your your predictive rating is pretty good. Your BPI is actually better than your Ken Palm. So, look, I I think as you look at all of that, obviously. You, I think you know there's only one game that you could really afford to lose on the
1: schedule the rest of the way, and that's right. the Rhode Island game coming up uh, over the weekend. Friday mean, yeah, that's and that would be a if, if that a win there, even though it's a home win, so it's less maybe less. No, 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 It's still a big it's win. Still, it's still a I great mean, uh, win. So, yeah. Rhode
0: Island has an RPI of five. They're good. <laughs> that, they're really they're good. good. You can knock off Rhode Island and and then keep from stubbing your toe against like Duquesne or right vcu that's a pretty that's a pretty good
1: resume yeah. builder so yeah so anyway well that'll that'll wrap it up for us uh tonight so, any, any final I, thoughts I, I do have a final olympic note and i think i knew this but it's still great to see that the that the women's bobsled is the two-man women that's the yes, official two name of man the man two-man women that's phenomenal
0: reminiscent that's- of the uh of, of mishawaka high school which i believe well their, their mascot is the cavemen and i okay. believe that their their women's team is called the lady cavemen that's just right proper yes so anyway so uh thanks for listening folks you can always hit us up on twitter at FlipsidePod pod if you got questions uh we'll be back next week we've only got a couple more podcasts uh, left in the season so uh if you got questions or comments send them our way and we'll try to get to them so for brian i'm galen we'll catch you folks on the flip side so long everybody